Episode 263, How Population Health Leaders Use Artificial Intelligence Right Now. Today, I speak with Andrew I. from Closed Loop. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's the thing. All the top performing Medicare Advantage plans are using today, right now, some form of advanced analytics and artificial intelligence to risk stratify their populations and predict which members will, without intervention, become high cost in the near term. The idea is then to intervene to mitigate risk and stop bad things from happening. Bad things that stink if you're the patient and also cost a lot if you're the plan. That's what population health management is all about, after all. Others using AI right now to do the kind of predictive analytics that you need to excel at Pop Health include PCP groups and other providers, mainly those at risk to manage populations or readmissions. Today, I talk with Andrew I about AI. Andrew is CEO over at Closed Loop. I get to ask Andrew some of the hard questions that have been bothering me about all of the AI hype, and he set me straight a couple of times. Love it when that happens. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Andrew I, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. Thanks. All right. So artificial intelligence in healthcare. Let's start there. That's a big statement. When I say artificial intelligence in healthcare, what do you think it means? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that the AI buzzword is sometimes used in a, in a variety of different contexts. Really, it comes down to kind of three things that people are usually talking about when they say AI in healthcare. The first is kind of this idea of replacing doctors with robots. And specifically, you hear this come up a lot in kind of image analysis questions. Can a robot or can an artificial intelligence algorithm read a radiology report or a pathology report as good or better than a doctor? So that kind of image analysis problem is, is one set. The next is kind of chatbots. Sometimes when people say AI for healthcare, what they mean is some form of Alexa, some form of Siri that is interacting with a person and maybe doing things like taking basic uh, symptoms checks and that sort of thing and this conversational AI. And then the last piece, and maybe the least, the least sexy version of AI in healthcare, is this concept of predictive analytics. Predictive analytics is all about using longitudinal health data to predict future health outcomes. Usually, when you're looking at predictive analytics, you're talking about who is most likely to fill in the blank, who's most likely to be expensive, who's most likely to be admitted, who's most likely to develop sepsis, and so on and so on. And so that last area of predictive analytics is kind of the area of focus for us here at Closely. Let's just address that elephant in the room. And this could be a little bit about the Gartner hype cycle where, you know, everybody starts out very excited about something and then you hit the old trough of disillusionment where everyone is disdainful and dismissive because it turns out that the technology doesn't live up to the hype. As we talk about AI, a lot of times people basically say, there's a funny PowerPoint slide I saw one time that said, if it's machine learning, it's programmed in Python. If it's AI, it's programmed in PowerPoint. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's a lot of dismissiveness. Like, does AI actually exist? 
I've seen that slide. I love that slide. I think sometimes technologists over-rotate to worrying about kind of these buzzwords that when they first put them out, they're meant to somehow differentiate versus the old buzzwords. But inevitably, as those buzzwords gain steam, we all adopt them because they work in marketing. And so whether you like it or not, you know, whenever people ask me, what's AI, what's machine learning, what's deep learning? I've seen so many Venn diagrams that are showing these overlapping circles. My response is, I don't care, right? At the end of the day, what people are interested in is not drawing some arbitrary distinction between deep learning, machine learning, artificial intelligence. What they really care about is how can this impact our business? How can this improve patient lives? And so I tend not to get sucked into that kind of technical argument about what is AI and what isn't. You know, for us, this is all just better math, right? And the idea of kind of predictive analytics or risk stratification, identifying people who are at risk for a given condition, this isn't new. I tend not to get pulled into that argument. In quotes, artificial intelligence or or any of its various pseudonyms actually exist? Or is it a really fancy way to just do better algorithms or something? You know, so we've got, um, you know, in quotes, man in the box, a mechanical Turk who is sitting there trying to optimize algorithms as opposed to letting the computer look at the data and figure out what the best way to do a predictive analytic assessment is? It's a great question. I think historically, as folks were trying to build predictive models, this all started with kind of rules-based approaches. In the healthcare field, there's a great example for predicting admissions. There's an algorithm that was developed called a LACE score. You could write out the rules for calculating that LACE score on a single piece of paper. And basically, it looks like at things like, how many prior admissions have you had? I mean, you get a certain number of points for that. And do you have any comorbid conditions? And you get a certain number of points for that. And you add those all up and there's your LACE score. And the higher your LACE score, the more likely you are to be admitted. And that's useful and it has some predictive power. So that's one end of the spectrum, a rules-based approach. On the other end of the spectrum, you have kind of the promise of these things like neural networks and deep learning. And the idea there is that we can just take in all of the data and without anyone needing to build any rules, we can make a new prediction and we can be more accurate. And you've seen really tremendous gains in areas like image analysis or natural language processing, where these deep learning approaches have beat all of the rules based, all the best man in a box, as you put it, tinkering around feature engineering. The challenge is when you start to try and do this operationally for things like longitudinal health histories, for one patient, you may have, you know, 10 years worth of claims or EMR data. And for the next, you may not. And so the question is, with imperfect data, can I really rely on a purely deep learning approach? And so far in in that area, you know, longitudinal health histories, risk stratification and so forth, deep learning is a useful tool, but we still need some level of manual feature generation. So the answer today is it's a mix of both. Nothing for nothing, but if you only have a very small amount of data about a patient, you're going to have the same issues in an algorithmic rules-based approach. You're spot on. And you think about it this way. If you're going to give me an image and say, is there an elephant in this image? It's really hard for you to give me an incomplete image. But if you're going to ask me, is this person likely to be admitted? And you you want to give me their health records? You can imagine that it's really easy or there's lots of scenarios in which you won't have a full picture of that patient. You may not have their EMR data. They might not have filled out that health risk assessment. You might not have an ADT record 
admission, discharge, and transfer record for them. And so it's really easy to understand why these techniques that are applied to image analysis very successfully don't perfectly translate to the world of kind of predictive analytics or longitudinal health histories. That's a good segue back to where we started with predictive analytics. And I'm assuming based on most especially what you just said, that predictive analytics is math that helps predict something, you know, as you mentioned, which patients are going to be the most expensive, which patients are the most likely to be readmitted, which patients are most likely to have some kind of catastrophic health event. Is there anything that you would, any color that you would add to that before we dive into what's going on here? You know, I think that the the use cases tend to fall in a, a few buckets, but generally in predictive analytics, right, predictive is the key question here. And the reason that you want to predict something is you want to do something different, right? So if I'm trying to identify who's going to be expensive, I'm going to take all those patients who are likely to be expensive and enroll them in care management, right? I can't afford to put everyone in care management. I can't afford to do home site visits for everyone. I can't afford to send free Uber rides for everyone. And so the goal is before they become expensive, find all the people who are most likely to be expensive. Is the value then effectively heading off bad things. You got it. So it usually falls into a few categories of use cases. So one is population health. We want to identify that top 5% of our population that's going to drive 50% of our costs. So if I'm a value-based provider, an ACO, a clinically integrated network, or if I'm on the payer side, and so I've built out intervention programs that are designed to help with things like controlling chronic disease or preventing admissions or readmissions or getting people to go to primary care instead of the ER. And the question is, how do I find the people who are most going to benefit? So that's pop health. Then you've got, even if I'm still operating in a fee-for-service world, you've got all these quality metrics. You may not be getting reimbursed for certain things if you have negative events. So for example, sepsis or pressure ulcers. And so you want to identify those patients on the front end that are most likely to develop sepsis or a pressure ulcer. So you can give extra attention to those folks and try and avoid those never ever events. And then finally, you have kind of operational use cases. There are cases, take for example, staffing, where you want to know how many folks am I likely to have? How many beds are likely to be full this coming Friday night so I can staff the number of nurses appropriately? So those are kind of some of the broad strokes or, or general buckets of use cases. And then you've got lots of different flavors within each of those. Let me just ask you a question about the pop health one. It's been said about the top 5% of patients who are the most expensive. That other programs have been, let's just say, discredited because the top 5% patients this year are usually not the top 5% next year. And sometimes programs claim that they're really successful, you know, by knocking the top 5% of patients this year out of the top 5% next year. But then you'll find that like 40% of them year over year are not actually in the top 5% the following year. So it's not, you know, (laughs) unless the program has 40% or greater results, it's not actually doing anything. How does that intersect with, you know, how does AI or what you're doing do that better? Yeah, so you're hitting on two important points here. One is this oversimplification of how people think about risk. One of the first things that I've noticed in the the health industry is that people just talk about risk and 
who's high risk. But if you drill into that and just ask one simple question, risk of what? You know, a lot of people, their eyes glaze over or they freak out, right? They don't actually know. It's just this high level concept of risk. Generally, what people are talking about is risk of being expensive, risk of high utilization. As you've pointed out, prior utilization, how expensive I was last year, turns out to be a really bad indicator of whether or not I'm going to be expensive this year. So the first point is, if you actually take a machine learning approach to this or do any statistical analysis, you're going to find out that what drives cost is not primarily how expensive I was last year. That's the first point. The second thing to kind of think about is when you want to look at intervention efficacy, right? So what you kind of touched on there was, how do I know if this program really worked or not? The way to do that, and you see this in the insurance industry and and plenty of folks know how to do the math of this, but basically you need to look at the risk adjusted outcomes. So given that I know in general, people who have these attributes, people who have a high BMI or people who have comorbid conditions, that these people are more likely to be admitted. Now I need to look at how did I reduce the actual admissions within that population? And so the whole key is being able to know on an individual patient basis, how likely was this person to have a negative health outcome before I intervened? And then out of the people I intervened on, how many had that negative health outcome? And now you can actually calculate did you have an impact or not based on that predicted risk versus actual outcomes. Are there any examples of real life case studies where this approach has been deployed and has been successful? 100%. I mean, staying on this theme of population health, there's a public scorecard for this. So if you look at the top performers in CMS's program here in the Medicare space, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, the top performers are all doing some type of advanced risk stratification to complement their intervention programs. If you're just using LACE scores to try and predict admissions, you are behind the curve. Folks are definitely investing in this area because at the end of the day, the expensive resources are those people that are actually executing these intervention programs. The cardinal sin is I just sent Andrew to do a home site visit and Andrew comes back and says, why did I go visit Mr. Smith? He's totally fine. He didn't need our help. Risk stratification, machine learning, all of these technologies are really critical to targeting those interventions to the right patients. The promise of artificial intelligence, for one, is that it improves over time. You know, like the the computer teaches itself. Do you see that those of the organizations, institutions, payers who are using tools like this, that they are in fact improving over time? So this is really important. You can kind of draw from other industries some analogies, but you're exactly right. This is the promise. The promise is not only that I can make a prediction, but that I can learn from how people react to those predictions. One of the big challenges in the healthcare space today is many folks who have been pioneers in this area have been building kind of homegrown algorithms. They're basically building their own systems to execute this kind of work. And the challenge is that gathering that feedback loop of, I made this prediction, I said Andrew was going to be highly likely to be admitted to the hospital, but then my nurse navigator or care coordinator overruled my risk prediction. They said, I know you think I should enroll this person in care management, but actually I know a little more than you and I'm going to overrule that recommendation. Capturing that moment that the prediction was made, but we were overruled and why were we overruled? 
most folks aren't there yet. And having a system that can capture that information and fold it back into the next round of predictions, that's where things are going over the next one to two years. The analogy that you can draw is Google. So why is Google so good at search engine or at search? And the reason is when Google started, everything was based on keywords. You'd search for a page and Google had scraped every page and they knew the density of keywords on a given page. But that's not what drives Google today. What drives Google today is they know what you click on. When they surface those search engine rankings, even if the keyword density on the, the fifth highest ranking page is lower, but if everybody clicks on option number five in the list, then option number five ends up at the top of the list. And so Google has this built-in feedback loop of knowing which articles you click on, and that's what actually drives search. The same thing is going to happen in healthcare, that when we surface these predictions, we have nurse navigators, care coordinators, physicians saying that prediction's right, that prediction's wrong, then these algorithms improve. Just even the use cases that we have thus far, as you just said, all of the top performers are using some variation of this, number one, number two, I don't know who hasn't used Google at this point. You almost get mad at Google when you're like, I just searched for this yesterday. Why Why don't you know what I'm misspelling right, right the now? Right, the creepy factor. <laughs> why are you serving me this stupid ad? Obviously, I'm not in the market for lawnmowers. That all being the case, what are the objections then? You know, like, why isn't everybody wildly running to embrace this technology? You know, why the trough of <laughs> disillusionment? Well, you know, this idea of money ball for healthcare has been around for a long time. And so I think there's been a, a number of kind of starts and stops and folks have become a bit disillusioned. But I think, you know, when you look at kind of the objections that are being made today, and particularly around this keyword of artificial intelligence, it really comes down to a couple things. The first is AI is a black box. And this idea that, well, those old LACE scores, maybe they weren't the most accurate, but I could understand how they worked, right? And I knew that the things that were going into those were things like prior admissions or comorbid conditions, and that made sense to me. And when you go to the opposite end of the spectrum for something like deep learning, oftentimes what you get back is, well, we don't really know how the algorithm worked, but you know, it's got a 92% accuracy. And the challenge is that's not good enough. You can't say, well, just trust the algorithm. Explainability is a real hot topic in artificial intelligence and specifically in healthcare. And there's a contest going on right now. CMS has published what they call their AI for Outcomes Challenge. It's a million dollar X prize that CMS has sponsored. And it's interesting because what CMS asked for wasn't the world's best algorithm, the world's most al accurate algorithm. What they asked for is, can you help us predict admissions, skilled nursing facility admissions and adverse events but what we're really interested in isn't just accuracy, it's explainability. And what they focused on was AI that physicians will trust. And so there's a huge emphasis on this today, really focusing in on trust and explainability and getting away from this black box. So that's number one. Number two is bias. You're seeing this in the news repeatedly. You know, does an algorithm overpredict or underpredict? particularly for some type of protected class, whether that's age or gender or ethnicity, really being able to demonstrate that we've looked at that. And is this model fair across all of these you know, socioeconomic or demographic classes? And then finally, the thing that we see and, and kind of one of the common objections, even if people believe, oh, well, you know, I, I think you've addressed the bias thing, or I think you've addressed the black box thing is, well, but 
you know, we're just not ready for that because our data is too messy. And it's interesting how different folks in the healthcare industry think that that's a unique problem for them. You know, we have a term for that around the office. We call it data shaming. And what we like to say, your messy healthcare data is beautiful and useful just the way it is. And people, you can understand that even if I've got incomplete data, even if people aren't 100% coded exactly correctly all the time, you know, you can understand that if I see a patient and I'm trying to predict admissions and I know that a prior diagnosis of diabetes is a good indicator of whether or not they might be admitted to the hospital, even if I don't see that ICD-10 code for a prior diagnosis of diabetes, but I see that they have a prescription for insulin, any human looking at that would say, mm, this is probably a diabetic patient. And so in the same way, machine learning approaches are able to pull that signal out of that messy data and say, you know what, to the algorithm, whether I'm coded as diabetic or not, if I've got that insulin prescription, pretty good chance that I look like a person who's diabetic. So those are the kind of three big areas, black box, bias, and, and kind of messy data that we hear over and over again. So starting with the last one first, a couple questions for you, Andrew. Do you feel like AI at this moment in time has the ability to overcome the challenges of messy data perhaps better than an algorithmic approach? You know, so for example, an algorithmic approach would be, you know, if then, if this patient has is coded for diabetes, then, or maybe you add additional like sub roles, you know, if this patient has a prescription for the following NDC coded, blah, blah, blah. Anyone who has tried to do that, and I have, understands that it gets and it turns into a hairball in like T minus 10 seconds. You know, like you get rules that contradict, you can't keep up with it. There's always something new. There's always something that changes. You know, at the end of the day, there's only three people that know what the heck you're doing <laughs> because it gets so complicated. That's right. <laughs> Whereas it sounds like with AI, it just kind of, maybe you give it some rules to start with, but then it kind of figures it out. So you don't have to deal with just all of that operational madness. Yeah, that's right. If you think about it this way, the traditional rules-based approaches drew these really defined lines in the sand. So you might say, if a person has more than four prior admissions, that would be your rule. But if someone has more than seven, are they more at risk than someone who has four? Or if someone has three, are they more at risk than someone who has one? And so what machine learning allows you to do is look at all those possible permutations across much more detailed rule sets. I'll give you a tangible example of this that we saw in the real world. We had a customer who came to us and said, hey, I want to tell you, Andrew, about a case that just came up, which was we had a 13-year-old kid in a Medicaid population who our machine learning approach had flagged as high risk. The traditional rules-based approach that they still ran in parallel had said that this kid was low risk. And specifically, it was high risk of being expensive. And so as they drilled into that case to see why is kind of the machine learning algorithm flagging as high and the old algorithm is flagging as low, the first thing that they saw in terms of the explanation was that this 13-year-old boy had a prior diagnosis of suicidal ideation. And as they drilled into the case further, they found out he had been referred to Child Protective Services twice in the last month. So here you have a kid who's saying, hey, I'm thinking about killing myself. And he's been referred to CPS twice. And the old rules-based approach said he doesn't need any help. Now, this organization had programs in place already to help with behavioral health. This is exactly the kind of person they actually can help. But the challenge is that you're not going to build that rule, right? That's not going to be one of the first things at the top of the list. And the machine learning process 
learned from the historical patterns in their data that a prior diagnosis of suicidal ideation was highly correlated with high expense. This is the great story, right? Is that the right people are getting help. When you get away from these simplistic rules-based approaches and you can leverage some of this technology, you get to find more needles in the haystack. And that's what it's all about for us. Okay, so moving to bias, and I did have a conversation with Dr. Kimberly Noel from Stony Brook Medicine. And one of the things that she put forth was, we're at a precipice here where this technology can either be a great democratizer in healthcare or it can actually make an existing problem much worse. And I think that's what you were alluding to. What's it going to take so that we achieve the former? The area of bias is really important. And there are a couple things that we can do. So the first is it is pretty easy if you take the time to do it to analyze your predictions across protected classes and across really any variable and see are you over predicting or under predicting a given outcome for folks of a certain ethnicity, folks of a certain gender, folks of a certain age. So the first thing is just situational awareness to not be okay with just pushing out an algorithm that is accurate on average without looking at is it accurate across these important subgroups. So that's issue number one. But fundamentally, the question becomes, well, what do I do when my model is biased? What do I do when I pull back the covers and I realize, wow, I'm doing a really poor job of predicting for this certain class? And the answer there is better input data. That oftentimes the reason that these models can become biased is that we just don't have enough information on the folks who are underrepresented. Folks who are less frequent consumers of the healthcare system have less data. And so how do we solve for that problem? This is really about you know collecting new information, using things like social determinants of health and where do I live, environmental factors that we can find that are also correlated with health outcomes, and just leveraging some of that publicly available data today. And then where does this go over the next few years? If you look at initiatives like allofus.org, a great example of bias is genetic testing. There just isn't enough historical genetic testing for folks in lower socioeconomic you know, classes. The opportunity there is to make a concerted effort to collect more information on folks who historically haven't engaged with the system or haven't had the resources to get those genetic tests in the past. So I think in the short term, this is all about using all of the available data and being aware of bias. And in the longer term, it's about collecting really rich information on more people. And I did interview a medical director from the All of Us initiative a couple of years ago, if anyone is interested in learning more about that. It, it really is very worthwhile. You know, so it sounds like effectively what's happening here, even in the example that you gave, is that what the technology is doing or has the potential to do, unfortunately, is amplify existing bias with biases within the system. And I don't think anyone would argue (laughs) that the system is already incredibly biased. Pick exactly like you said, certain subpopulations and there's including women and you will find overwhelming evidence that that's the case. However, what they say, and this is whether you're talking about self-driving cars or you're talking about healthcare, you know, it, it's often been said that the technology has to be 10 times better than the human equivalent in order for it to be accepted. So maybe we're kind of in that messy middle where it hasn't quite achieved the 10x. So people are fearful of uh, deploying it. You know, I think it's a little different. So I think that the analogy of self-driving cars, the challenge is I either want to drive my car or I want to not have to drive my car. Right. And if I'm going to not drive my car, then 
the car needs to be 10 times better than me at driving because you know people make mistakes, but I'm not gonna allow a computer to cause a car accident. I think when it comes to artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive analytics, and healthcare, the bigger travesty, the bigger sin is to not use this technology now. Because the truth is, when you're trying to figure out who should get that home site visit, if you say, well, I'm just afraid of machine learning or I'm just afraid of artificial intelligence and so I'm just not gonna do that, and I'm gonna randomly guess who's gonna be expensive, then the wrong people are getting these resources. And frankly, our healthcare system can't afford for that level of inefficiency. And the opportunity and where this is different than the analogy of kind of self-driving cars is it's not the doctor or machine learning. It's not the doctor versus the algorithm. There's no doctor whose job it is today to review 2 million charts a day and figure out which 3% of those charts should go into care management. We're not replacing a doctor's job there. And so the key is that by better sorting that list, by getting the people to the top, and then including humans in the decision and allowing them to overrule, then the algorithms can get better. But more importantly, the combined answer of physician and machine learning, physician and math is better than either one on its own. And that's different than than self-driving cars. I buy it. I look at it this way. Fast forward into the future, whether it's five years or 10 years, whatever timeline you want to pick, can you imagine a future in which you walk into your doctor's office and they're not using all of your historical data, all of your family's data to better understand what's wrong with you or what they should do about it? That's an eventuality. It's not a question of of if, it's a question of when. At the end of the day, do you believe that Google or Facebook level intelligence is coming to the point of care? I think that's an eventuality. I don't think it's a question of if, right? It's a question of of just when. That's the promise. And I believe, I don't know about you, but if it's 10 years from now and my doctor's not using that technology, well, I'm going to find another doctor that is. Yeah. And it's not like suddenly nine years and 364 days from now, somebody can be like, oh yeah, I better, where do I install the thing? I'm sure a learning curve. That being said, there was just this big brouhaha in the news where Judy Faulkner wrote a letter really imploring hospital executives to try to combat the interoperability requirements, you know, because EHRs such as Epic charge up to something like 40% of digital health revenue to connect patient data. So it's not, it seems like forces like that actually impede because they impede the collection of large data sets, they may also impede the ability of an artificial intelligence tool to really do its thing at an optimal level. This kind of touches a little bit on what I think is also a little overstated in the world of artificial intelligence. There's this idea that he who has the most data wins, that the big challenge in all of these problems is that we don't have enough data to build a model. And everybody knows that machine learning is data hungry. Interoperability the more we can address that, the more data we have, the more accurate models become. That is true, but there are diminishing returns. Let's take an example. If I'm a Medicaid-focused hospital in the South Bronx, and I wanna build an admissions predictor, right? I wanna figure out who's most likely to be admitted, what that algorithm is gonna learn when it looks at my data is kids with asthma are really likely to be admitted to the hospital. Now, if I take that same model and I go down to South Florida, and I go to a Medicare-focused hospital, that model is not going to perform very well because the reason that people are admitted to that Medicare-focused hospital in South Florida is because of falls and broken hips 
the idea that if I could just collect more data, then somehow my algorithms are going to be better, that really falls apart when you look at longitudinal health histories. Because the reasons that people are admitted to one hospital, the reasons that people are expensive in one population are different. It's regional, it's local. And so interoperability helps, yes, because now I can get more information about my patients. But the idea that somehow more data naturally means I'm going to be more accurate, in the real world, you find out that that's actually not true. You can decrease your accuracy if you start looking at a population that isn't yours. It sounds like the trick would be to ensure that you've got longitudinal data, you know, so maybe that hospital in the South Bronx, they also, you know, most of those people go to, I don't know, urgent cares in the area or they work in Manhattan. So to have the connectivity with some downtown facilities or something like that, not necessarily some totally unrelated, you have to follow the path of the patient. You've got it. The more gaps I can fill in on the patient, the better. The more I can fill in more information about this patient, this is where interoperability really does help. But the key is don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Just because I don't, I haven't yet fully solved that interoperability problem doesn't mean that I can't do a better job with the data that I have. Before you worry about the data you don't have, focus on the data you do have. What is all the information I'm collecting on this patient that might be helpful? Can I look at their EHR records? Can I look at their health risk assessment, their survey information? Can I look at the call logs from my nurse navigators to figure out who's likely to engage with me? Using all of that available data rather than focusing on what you don't have is the starting point. And you're already seeing very kind of preliminary versions of this already, whether it's, you know, admission discharge and transfer feeds and health information exchanges, you know, that can get us some subset of data or whether it's things like Blue Button 2.0 or Apple Health Kit that are putting that data in the hands of the patient. That's where I see this going is I'm going to show up with my own health records and say, you better use all this information, right? Because I want the best care you can give me. I have an incentive as a patient to bring that data to the table. So I think we're headed in the right direction there, but I don't like seeing folks on the sidelines saying, well, we can't even tackle that problem until we have data X. You're running your business today. And whatever data you're using to run your business, that data has predictive signal and you can use it to provide better patient care. I'm inferring, Andrew, based on what you said rather explicitly, (laughs) that if I'm interested in exploring how AI, you know, I'm a provider organization or a payer organization, maybe even employer, I have a data set, you know, step one is take stock of what data I do have. What do I do next? You know, is there some sort of prescribed checklist or something, you know, like what do I have to have done before I pick up the phone and call a group such as Closed Loop or, you know, an AI team? The first point is kind of get started now, right? That you can pick up the phone and you can explore this and you don't need to go hire some huge consulting organization and you don't have to have a $3 million budget in order to get started. One of the things that we've focused on at Closed Loop is this, we call a 24-hour proof of concept. For us, because we've done so much automation around handling common healthcare data types, claims, EHR, ADT, labs, we can onboard a customer's data and build a new predictive model based on whatever data sets they send us in as little as 24 hours, particularly for these common healthcare use cases, right? Everybody wants to predict admissions, readmissions, ED utilization, sepsis, pressure ulcers, no-shows for appointments. The things that people want to predict their real financial or quality needle movers are pretty well known. And the answer is you don't have to do a lot of legwork. You don't have to do a lot of data prep. You don't have to do a lot of this. 
really you can get started, you know, just by, by identifying what is it that I want to predict and what am I going to do differently? That's actually the key question. Why do I want to predict this thing? And what am I going to do differently if I can predict it? If you know those two things, everything else falls into place. The old, how do I make this actionable conundrum. So Andrew, where can people find out more about Closed Loop if they are interested in doing so? Sure, it's closedloop.ai. That's probably the best place to start. You can find me personally on Twitter. It's Andrew I. The tag name is A-I. So I guess I was meant to do this. Those are two great places to start. And um, yeah, we'd be happy to answer any questions. Andrew, I thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Stacey, thanks so much. It was great chatting with you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.